Hi friends, welcome. Uh, look, I just want to say it's been so wonderful for Jen and me over the last six months here at Church by the Bridge. It's been get, great getting to know so many of you and it's a privilege to be here tonight as well. Look, if it's your first time here tonight at Church by the Bridge, welcome. Hope you enjoy the time that we spend together tonight. So early this year, I saw a film which I really should have seen years ago. It's over four hours long. It's got an interval after the first two hours, probably because it's almost impossible to sit through the entire thing without a toilet break. It's an awesome film. It literally has casts of thousands. It's, but more than that, it's a great story. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm talking about Ben-Hur, the film. It's an amazing story, isn't it? You see, films that I've enjoyed most are always ones which tell a great story. And great stories invariably capture for us the journey of a a person, a character, who's confronted by conflict or, or change, or an experience which challenges the way that they see the world and think about themselves. I mean, think about it. Shawshank Redemption, Gladiator, The Lord of the Rings, Napoleon Dynamite. So over the next four weeks, we're going to explore the life and story of a, of a man named Jonah. Now, the story is going to be familiar to some of us. I mean, Jonah's account's a, a very small part of the Bible, isn't it? It's one of the shortest books in the entire collection. But as we'll hopefully see over the next few weeks, it shows us so much of who we are and who God is. Because at its core, Jonah's story is really a story of a man's journey to the heart of God's unfailing love. But more than that, it takes us on a similar journey as well, to the heart of God's unfailing love. As you know what, guys, I'm really excited to be able to explore this with you guys over the next few weeks. So this week, we get a snapshot of Jonah on the run and God in pursuit. And we see how personally encountering God changes everything. So right now, we're going to hear from the Bible, uh, and then we're going to spend a bit of time looking at what the Bible says. I'm going to kick us off reading uh, Jonah chapters 1 and 2. That can be found starting on page 851 of the church Bibles. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. 
Then they said to him, Tell us, who is to blame for this trouble we're in? What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quieten down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths and into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth, with its prison bars, closed behind me forever. But you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And continuing at chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. 
they must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, It's my right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labour over and did not grow. It appeared in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people, who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So friends, let me start tonight by sharing a story with you, my sisters. Look, my sister first stepped into the church in about 2001 as a teenager. It was a very difficult period of her life. Uh, the years before had been marked by frequent visits to doctors and, and counsellors. And so our parents had encouraged us to go along to church to, I guess, find a place of of refuge uh, through life's trials and struggles. And and I guess my sister, she went to the youth group, uh, went to the church, learnt lots about God, about Jesus and the Bible, immersed herself in the best programs that the church had to offer, developed lots of wonderful friendships as well. She even got baptised a few years later. But here's the thing, if you asked her whether she knew God back then, her answer would be no. Because while she knew lots about God, she'll tell you that she never actually had a, a personal connection with him at all. And so she eventually went down to, to Melbourne by herself in 2010 to get away from, from everything here in Sydney. And she'll tell you this, that just like Jonah, here in chapter 1, She was on the run from God. Chapter 1. God gives Jonah a mission. 
And that mission, verse 1, to go to what was probably the most powerful and influential city of that time, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, somewhere in modern-day Iraq or Iran. It's an empire which, at its height, is oppressing Jonah's people. And what's he to do? Verse 2, have a look. To warn the people there of impending disaster. But what does Jonah do? He runs away to Tarshish. So basically somewhere in Spain. Uh, Just so you can picture it, Jonah is here in Israel on the left. God says, head east, right? But then Jonah heads west, 6,000 kilometers in the opposite direction. You can see that he's not just running from a place, is he? Because when you look at the text, he's running from a person. Do you see the phrase that's repeated twice in verse 3? Can you see it? Have a look. He's running from the Lord's presence. He's running from God himself. Now, the narrative moves pretty quickly from here because next God sends a storm in verse 4. And then in verse 5, Jonah tries to sleep through it right down in the heart of the ship. Everyone else on board is, is freaking out, crying out to their gods. And then as you see in verse 12, in a bizarre moment of clarity, Jonah realizes that he's responsible for the storm and endangering everyone else on board. So what's he do? He offers to throw himself into the water to save the lives of the other sailors. But they refuse at first, but it all gets too much. They're in an absolute bind. And in verse 14, they start crying out to God, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And so they chuck him in. And then something unexpected happens, doesn't it? You see it in verse 15. The sea calms. God provides him with a fish, which saves him from drowning. It's a full-on action-packed scene to an opening story, isn't it? Now, There's a lot that can be said about this account here, but what's most striking about the opening to Jonah's story? It shows us what it looks like to be running from God, doesn't it? But it also shows us how God pursues someone who's on the run. Now, in a group of this size, not all of us here tonight are going to have had the same experiences, the same background growing up. And so when we hear words like sin or grace they're likely to mean different things to us, aren't they? But when we look at what's happening here, we see two things at play. Firstly, we see a picture of sin. That's us running away from God. And secondly, we see a picture of grace, God chasing after us. You got that? Us running, God chasing We pursue our own wisdom and agendas, that's sin, and God pursues us and rescues us from self-destructive behavior. That's his grace. We've got a story of sin and grace, but but it's more than that. And I'm hoping that we'll see tonight that this passage is all about us personally encountering God and how that encounter changes everything. So I want to explore three things tonight. Firstly, how we run from God. Secondly, why we run from God. And thirdly, how and why God pursues us. All right, let's go to our first point, how we run from God. 
On a quick glance, Jonah's situation seems so different from ours, doesn't it? I mean, he's on a ship, we're not, but, but let's have a think about it. We've, we've already seen that Jonah literally runs in the opposite direction, haven't we? He wants to get away as, he, as far as he possibly can from the mission that he's been given and the person that's giving him that mission, God himself. And we saw that before, but there's more, isn't there? I mean, what's he doing in the ship? I mean, he's sleeping below deck in the middle of the storm, isn't he? When everyone else is just losing it. I mean, just just have a look at verse 5. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched himself out and fallen into a deep sleep. This is a a conscious, premeditated decision to sleep it off, isn't it? What's going on here? He's hiding. He's in denial, isn't he? Can you see that? It reminds me of a story that my dad once shared with me. And if you know my dad well, he can pretty much sleep anywhere at any time. So he'll be, he'll be on a plane and he'll be out long before the plane's even taken off. So on one trip uh, from Hong Kong, midway through on the flights, one of the engines bursts into flames. And people on the plane, as you'd expect it, are just losing it. Yeah, they're, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're distressed. One of the passengers, unfortunately, suffers from a heart attack as well. And he's thankfully stabilized by a doctor uh, who's on the plane. The plane's diverted to, to Singapore for an emergency landing. Dad sleeps through the whole thing. I mean... Sleep, it's such a powerful thing, isn't it? It allows us to shut ourselves off from what's happening around us. And it's exactly the same for Jonah. He's running from God. He's hiding from him. You see, at the heart of sin is a desire to run and to hide. And we see it right from the side of the Bible, don't we? I mean, just think about what happens to to Adam and Eve. What happens after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They hide from God. You see, God has created us for deep, personal connection with him. But sin disrupts that connection. I suspect some of us know what it's like to be on the run. Some of us might be running and hiding from our past, running from traumatic experiences, failed relationships, running from old identities, maybe creating new ones. We might even be deeply religious and and moral, and so we hide our insecurities through our religiousness, our church activities, whatever they might be. Or, Or maybe we've got a deep desire to be respected, and so we people please. Maybe we just find it hard trusting others to actually being vulnerable and opening ourselves up and being honest about who we are. And maybe some of us are are posturing and performing and projecting to others an image of extroversion, of self-confidence, of superiority to get ahead. Maybe in our own ways, we kind of subtly put people down to, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. 
And so we're prepared to do things which compromise our character and compromise our values as well. I came across a book recently um, introduced by a friend. It's by an author called Susan Cain. It's titled Quiet. And, and, and for me, I don't know if you've come across this book, but it's a really interesting read. Because um, basically the book explores how we as a society have somehow gotten to a point where we've just placed an overwhelming value on being extroverted. That because of, for example, the, the nature of entertainment culture, we love the personalities who can wow us and capture our attention for that brief moment. And, and the book questions why it is that we valued charisma over character. And she makes the interesting observation that someone like Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was known to be a deeply introverted person, would probably never make it as a president in our time. You see, such a large part of knowing God is understanding how it is that we, you and I, run and hide from him. And a lot of the times it's subtle, isn't it? I mean, in some cases we run by, by chasing other things. We find our ultimate security in things. Work, family, relationships, health, property, retirement. I mean, don't get me wrong. These, these are all really good things, but they're just not meant to be pursued in place of God. And you know what? I think we know this because relationships change, health deteriorates, property devalues, death happens. And we know that these things just won't satisfy us long-term. And sometimes, the things that we chased after, just they're, they're not that tangible, are they? I mean, what hidden desires are you and I secretly pursuing? Have we nurtured feelings of resentment, of perhaps jealousy, bitterness, cynicism? And I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, when we look behind the, the persona that we present, to others, and even to ourselves sometimes, we're, we're on the run, just like Jonah, aren't we? And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, so what? That's, that's human. And, and in some ways, you're right. But you see, we shouldn't be fooled, because running from God is self-destructive. It's, it's kind of like a fish that's trying to get itself out of water onto land. You see, Running from God is disconnecting ourselves from the way that he's made us. And when we do that, it hurts us. But you see, here's, here's the most frightening thing about sin. It can be so insidious. I mean, imagine day after day, just drinking glasses of water contaminated with radiation. It won't kill you overnight, but it will kill you over time. And you see... That's what resentment, jealousy, and bitterness, and cynicism can do. So the question isn't, do we run from God? The question is, how we run from God? How is it that we hide? Know the ways that you and I run from God. That's the first step. Here's the second. Understanding why we run from God. Let's have a look at Jonah's situation. I mean... On the surface, it looks pretty simple, doesn't it? 
We kind of get the situation that he's in. He's a Jewish man whose nation, his cultural and religious identity has been overrun by the Assyrian Empire. And yet, God calls him to go straight to the heart of this empire and to warn this enemy empire of impending disaster. It's kind of like, you know, one of us going into an ISIS camp, stepping right into the middle and telling them that they got it wrong and it's time to surrender. It's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? You see, for Jonah, there's a few things that are at play here. And you might be thinking to himself, look, he's simply afraid of the task. He's afraid of failure. But we know that's not the case. Why? You see, the story of Jonah, it's kind of like a a season or an episode of Breaking Bad or uh, Homeland. You've got some idea at the start of, you know, who's doing what, who's aligned with who, why people are doing what they're doing, Um, but you don't have the full picture. That is, until you've watched a few episodes. You see, when we get to Jonah 4, which we read before, the last chapter, we see Jonah's reason for running. Skip over Jonah 4, so chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Listen to what he says after the people of Nineveh turn back to God in repentance. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Listen to his angry prayer. Isn't this what I said whilst I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, uh, rich in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. See what's going on here, don't you? Jonah didn't trust what God was seeking to do through him. He couldn't bear the possibility that God would show his love and favor to these pagan Ninevites. That God would use him to extend his love to people who simply didn't worship or honor or respect him. Jonah didn't want Nineveh saved. He wanted those dirty pagans destroyed. And you see it there in those verses, don't you? What are we looking at here? This isn't just national pride. This is racism. This is bigotry at its worst, isn't it? Jonah's on the run, not because he fears uh, failure, but because he fears success. And it's his sense of cultural and uh, religious superiority which is driving all this behavior. He's self-righteous and indignant. I mean, we, we can see it in Jonah. But my question is this. Can we see it in ourselves? Probably not. Because often the self-righteousness that's in us is masked with this respectability, isn't it? Think about it. We love to know where it is that we are on the pecking order in our, our work our families, our social circles. And it's here that we're subconsciously measuring up and measuring down. We're looking either side and comparing ourselves to to each other. Our lifestyles, our jobs, our successes, our influences, our morality. Sure, I mean, most of us keep it to ourselves. 
But we criticize those who have more than us, and we look down on those who have less. And so we're, we're kind of quietly self-righteous. You see, here's the thing. The funny thing about self-righteousness is, is, is it can really cut both ways. I mean, we look at Jonah and we might think to ourselves, you know, what a, a bigoted, narrow-minded, uneducated person. We are so much better than that. And so we, we kind of look down, don't we? Maybe we look down on others who don't share the same morality and values as ourselves. Maybe we look down on those who are less experienced, less mature. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Think of the times when we look down on others who, who don't know God, who don't understand the Bible as well as we do or as clearly as we do, who don't live the lives that we expect they should be living. Maybe some of us have just gone through stuff in life, you know? And we look down on those who haven't. We look at their lives and they're living the good life. You know, they're successful, carefree, happy. And we think to ourselves, boy, those guys are shallow. Thank God that I'm so much more enlightened. I mean, that's, that's self-righteousness masters self-pity, isn't it? So my question is this, why is it that Jonah and us are like this? It's simple. He didn't trust the goodness of God, that God could love those who he thought were outside his love. But this is important. Trust changes everything. It changes everything. Trust changes everything. Let me explain. Uh, So at school... Uh, I was without a doubt a nerd. I studied all the time. I never went to parties. I never, ever hung out with girls after school. And my favorite place, you guessed it, was the library. And so when I, when I got to high school, my dad decided it was time for me to man up. And so what did he do? He signed me up for the cadet corps. And you know what? I couldn't think of anything worse. I mean, wearing a ridiculous uniform and beret every Friday, going to camps, sleeping in tents, having to cook my own food, showering once a week. I mean, seriously, just just look at me. (laughs) Just didn't cope. And yet, when I reflect on those times, when I Think, think back about that experience that I had. I kind of reflect on it with a lot of fondness. Because I learned so much about resilience, about leadership, about independence. It, it taught me things that have shaped me in ways that I just hadn't expected. And you know what? A, a big part of why I didn't push back on Dad at the time was because I trusted him. I trusted that he was looking out for me. I mean, even though I couldn't really see it at the time, I followed him. See, trust is such a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, just take a moment to think about the people who've had the greatest influence in your life. Just think about that for a second. You trusted them, didn't you? You trusted them even when you couldn't see exactly where it is that they were going with everything. And that's what happens. When we trust someone... We find security in their judgment. We find comfort 
in their character. And we, we can be honest with them, and so we take their lead. So why is it that Jonah distrusted God's goodness here? Why is it that case? It's simple but profound. Jonah hadn't had a personal encounter with God. I mean, he knew about God's grace, at least intellectually, right? I mean, he was a prophet after all. And, and as some of you will know, if you're a prophet in the Old Testament, you're kind of uniquely chosen uh, person that God revealed himself to you in a very direct way. And we see that right at the start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It came to him in a very direct way. He literally heard the voice of God. And yet, in his heart, he couldn't and he wouldn't accept that God's grace could extend to people beyond himself. And Jonah couldn't share God's grace because he hadn't personally encountered and experienced it for himself. So is this you and me? Do we label ourselves as followers of, of Jesus and yet we kind of refuse to share God's love with those around us? Do we judge and look down on, on others that we disagree with? Pastor and author Tim Keller makes a really interesting observation. He says that the human heart has one of two modes. The first is this. Either you feel superior because you've made it, or the second, you despair because you haven't. So either you have a, a high view of yourself, or you have a low view of yourself. But here's the thing. The gospel destroys both. Now, when, when I'm talking about the gospel here, I'm talking about the good news. And the good news is this, that God is in the business of bringing people back into relationship with him. He's in the business of showing unmerited, undeserved favor to those who are on the run from him and who are pursuing self-destructive behavior. And the gospel destroys both those views because it says to us, you are far more fallen than you think, but you're also much more loved than you ever imagined. You were once enslaved, but now you're free. You were once eternally indebted to God, and now God has paid for it completely. And this is important. God does all the work. He pays the price, and that's God's grace. But what about us? Well, we simply receive it with deep gratitude and thankfulness. Some of us might be thinking to ourselves, well, if that's the gospel, well, that's, that's much too easy. That's much too cheap. And you know what? I, I see where you're coming from. But let, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Imagine a guy... He's been dating a girl for some time, and he finally decides that he, he's going to propose. So he goes out, you know, uses the money that he's saved up over a couple of months to buy a beautiful diamond ring for her. It's engagement day. He takes her out to a romantic location, pulls out his guitar. You know, he's written a song. He's, he's very talented. He sings to her. Uh, just to clarify, this, this guy isn't me. Now it's time. He pulls out the ring, gets down on one knee, and asks her to marry him. And she, of course, says yes. 
She's in tears. So far, so good. He places the diamond ring on her finger. She thanks him. But this is where things take an unexpected turn. In a moment of utter embarrassment, she realizes just how expensive the ring is. So what's she do? She pulls out a $2 coin that's in her pocket and insists that he receives it in exchange for the ring. Sounds, kind of sounds crazy, doesn't it? But you see, that's exactly what it's like when we try to offer God something in return for his grace. It's ridiculous and it's insulting. What she should have done was just receive the ring with joy and appreciation. Correct? You see, the gospel compels us to recognize a moral bankruptcy. But it doesn't leave us there. Because it completely restores our relationship with him. And so the gospel destroys our self-righteousness and it destroys our self-pity at the same time. And I think, I think C.S. Lewis puts it well. He might have come across this quote before, but he says this. He says that true humility, which, which the gospel produces, doesn't mean that we think more of ourselves or that we think less of ourselves. It simply means that we think about ourselves less. You see how the gospel destroys those two worldviews? It humbles us. It brings us joy. It compels us to share that experience with others around us. You see, Jonah hadn't experienced that for himself. So what about us? Have you and I personally experienced God's grace for ourselves? I mean, we can talk about grace as much as we like. We can, we can profess whatever it is that, that we want. But until that grace hits us in here, until it's done that work on the inside, until it humbles our sense of self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, our, our superiority, until you and I begin to see the depths of God's compassion towards us, His love the price that he paid through his son, the cost that he bore to pursue us as we we're on the run. Until then, I don't think we've fully grasped and encountered God's grace for us. But you see, when it hits us in here, amazing things happen. And that's what we're going to see next week in the next part of Jonah's story. But I want to take us to our last point tonight. How and why God pursues us. Firstly, how? What happens to Jonah? God sends a storm. But what's it, what's it all mean? What's it all mean? What's the storm mean? I mean, there's something unique about the storm, isn't there? I mean, do you see its dual nature? Do you see the two aspects of it? Let me explain. Firstly, the storm here is clearly a symbol of God's judgment and anger at Jonah. And you see it there in verse 4, if you have a read. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind onto the sea, and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. In verse 12, Jonah realizes that this storm is directly linked to his actions. You can see that. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm. The storm causes immense turmoil and suffering on the ship, doesn't it? But, it's also the very thing which Jonah throws himself right in the middle of. You can see it there in verse 15. 
He throws himself into the raging sea. But what happens? Does he perish? No. Because under the waves, he finds refuge. Verse 17, God graciously provides him with a huge fish to save him from perishing. The storm is the very thing which brings Jonah back to God. And I think it shows us a, a profound truth that we can't miss. That it's in suffering and turmoil that we can find refuge in God. But friends, please don't misunderstand me. Because whilst the Bible teaches that you know, suffering in this world exists, it, it, it exists because it's fallen. And fallen because collectively, humanity, uh, just like Jonah, has rejected God. It also teaches us, it's, it's not always the case, that suffering is personally and directly connected to the consequences of our actions. But the reality is this. Our world is not in step with God's purposes and his plans. It's broken. And we feel it directly and personally at some stage in our lives. I, um, I shared briefly during Easter about Jen's mum. So I want to take you back to um, 2008. In November 2008, Jen and I, we got married. And it was such an amazing time, you know, seeing family come together to celebrate such a wonderful milestone. We went on a honeymoon, we, we came back, and, and then two weeks later we found out that Jen's mum had been diagnosed with myeloma, a cancer of the blood, and that there wasn't any known cure. The prognosis, maybe five years, maybe more, it was hard to say. But over the next few years, mum experienced the ups and the downs of cancer treatment, going in and out of hospitals, being poked and prodded, all the testing and all the medication and all the side effects. But that was the easiest part. The hardest part, the excruciating and the unrelenting pain. And then the lingering question behind the pain, why? And I don't think I have a complete answer for that yet. But what I can say is this. During those years, I witnessed something extraordinary in her life. That through her pain and suffering, she developed a closeness with God and a peace with him that I'd never seen in the 13 years that I'd known her. That in her pain and suffering, in the storm that she was in, God brought her closer to him than ever before. And like Jonah, it was that storm and in that storm that she most profoundly experienced his grace. Mum threw herself into the middle of the storm, but like Jonah, she didn't perish. She found rest and refuge. And on 31 May last year, Mum found complete and final rest and refuge him forever. I haven't known many of you guys for, for very long, but I know that some of you guys have gone through some pretty difficult times in life, some of your own storms. I don't know if you're responsible or if you're not responsible, um, 
And in some cases, it doesn't matter. But know this, God is right there in the middle of those storms with you. That you can find rest and refuge in him. That God is pursuing your heart. He's breaking down your self-sufficiency, your self-righteousness and your self-confidence and is leading you to find these things not in yourself, but to find them in him. And then in the middle of the storm, under the waves, where you least expect it, you'll find his grace and you'll find his love. But there's one thing that we shouldn't miss here, is there? Because Jonah's story points us to another story, doesn't it? It points us to a person who, who wasn't on the run and yet threw himself into the storm of God's wrath to make it possible for those of us who were on the run to come back. I'm talking about Jesus. I mean, we just sang about earlier tonight the cross. I mean, when Jesus stepped on the cross, he faced the full anger of God for our rejection of him in our place. And so what the cross does is this, it simultaneously exhausts God's anger and lifts up his love. There are some of us here tonight who are on the run. Your hearts and and your minds are restless. And it's during the moments in life when you're not frantically filling your life with stuff when you feel it most. Work, social engagements, hobbies, church activities. That's when you feel it. You're tired of running. You're looking for rest. You're looking for refuge. And let me say this to you. God is pursuing you because he knows that those things will not satisfy you. Or give you the rest that you need. Because the reality is this. There is no rest from God until you find rest in God. I started tonight with a story about my sister, and this is how it ends. I'll never forget the weekend in May 2012 when I went down to visit her in Melbourne. Um, I sat with her in the car that weekend, and I sensed that things hadn't been easy for her since heading to, to Melbourne two years before. But during one of our car rides on the Saturday, she asked me if we could visit a church together in Melbourne Central. I'd been praying for many years for moments like this. So we went to church the next day. We, we sat at the back. My sister had, of course, been to church many times before in Sydney. But that morning, as we went to church together, I sensed that Something was different. We heard the sermon together, the start of John's gospel, where Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And as we got to the end of the service, as we sang our last song, I I turned to her and I could see how deeply moved my sister was. And I knew right at that moment that, that God was speaking to her. And so we prayed. Tears streaming down our faces, people around us whom we didn't know. And we prayed that God would reveal himself and do the impossible to lift the burdens, 
to break the chains, set her free. And friends, that's exactly what he did. He took her from a place of deep darkness to a place of abundant light. And everything changed from the inside out. You see, since then, my sister's life has been characterized by a relentless desire and a drive to pursue his love and to follow him. And I've seen how God's grace has shaped her love for the lost and the broken. I've seen how his faithfulness has empowered her faithfulness to her family and her friends. So friends, stop running tonight. Do business with God. Encounter him personally. Take the step to admit your need for his forgiveness. And, you know, if your heart has grown cold to his grace, then re-encounter and re-experience him tonight. And whatever storms you, you might be facing right now, trust him. Cast yourselves on him and find your refuge in his love in the storm beneath the waves. So friends, um, we're going to spend a bit of time uh, in open prayer, and that means that it's going to be over to you guys. Uh, If there's anything which God is moving you in your hearts to pray, then why don't you come up here uh, to pray, or you can just stand up wherever it is that you are and pray in response to what we've heard tonight. Um, But let me kick things off by opening in prayer. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for inviting us to take an honest look at ourselves and to reflect on how it is that we've been running from you, hiding from you. Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we've been pursuing our own, agen- own agendas. We've been finding our ultimate security in things rather than you, clinging to frustrations and resentments. But Lord God, thank you so much for pursuing us and we pray tonight that you will reshape our hearts, that you will humble our self-righteousness and self-pity and help us look to you, Jesus, the price that you paid and to re-encounter you and to re-experience your love tonight. Fill us with joy. Help us find our refuge in you. And God, I want to pray for my friends, those of us here tonight who haven't experienced or encountered you ever before, Lord God, just pray that you work in our hearts. Humble us. Show us your love. Help us surrender ourselves to you and to throw ourselves at your love in your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.